Welcome to the Change Log, episode 0.1.5. I'm Adam Stokoviak. And I am Wynn Netherland. We follow what's fresh and new in the world of open source. If you found us on iTunes, we're actually on the interwebs at thechangelog.com. Or for a real-time view, check out tail.thechangelog.com. We're also on github.com forward slash explore. We'll find some trending repos, some feature repos from our blog, and all the episodes of our podcast. So check it out. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so as well. Follow Change Log Show, not The Change Log, sorry. And if you want to follow me, I'm Adam S-T-A-C. That's Adam Stack. And I'm Penguin, P-E-N-G-W-Y-N-N. Well, you're just back from FOA. Yeah, FOA, man. It was an awesome time in Miami. It's, uh, it's like not quite Vegas. It's not Sin City, but it's, it's close enough. And uh, a lot of fun there. A lot of good people at the, at the conference. And Ryan always knows how to uh, do a good job. And not just himself, but his team as well. He's got an awesome team he's built. And they definitely know how to do conference as well. And I hear- Ryan Carson you're talking about? Yeah, Ryan Carson, yeah. Carsonified, yeah. I'm excited about heading out to the uh, Twitter conference, Chirp, yeah. in April. It's a Carson joint. That's uh, just before JSConf, isn't it? Yeah, little birdie says we may be out there. Yeah, that's what I heard. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, yeah, we uh, uh, one person we did catch up with. Well, actually, two people. Um, one specifically uh, from Facebook. We we hope to catch up with David Recordin. He had a few minutes to chat with Ryan on stage about what Facebook is doing at open source, and I think he's got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. So hopefully, he makes some time to show his face or his voice on this uh, this ditty. Look forward to it. We got a great interview this week with Leah Culver, recently of Six Apart, most recently of PlanCast. It's a development since we recorded the episode. It's kind of funny how she uh, like didn't uh, tell us about that. It was like the day after she announced it. Yeah, we could have scooped it. I feel like we've been we've been wronged, Leah. Oh well, oh, yeah. it's a good interview nonetheless. Yeah, no, she's awesome. I think uh, what she's done with uh, with OAuth and especially what you guys were talking about with the whole API junkie stuff, man, you guys are crazy. Yeah, I've got a sickness, and it's called APIs. So, good stuff, good stuff. It's a great interview. You want to get to it? Yeah, sure. Let's go. All right, we're joined today by Leah Culver, and we're with Adam. I should mention that Adam's with us because he yeah, I'm here makes too. this, this uh, strange appearance about 30 minutes into every episode. So Adam's here, yeah, waiting here. in the wings. And we're talking today with Leah Culver from Six Apart. Leah, why don't you introduce yourself to the uh, audience, that, the guys that might not know you, and uh, what you do at Six Apart. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Leah Culver. I work at Six Apart currently as a product manager, but formally as a software engineer. And prior to that, I had my own company, Pounds, um, where I was uh, the primary engineer, and that was acquired by Sixpart sometime last December. So I do a lot of work with Django and a little bit with, with some other technologies. So I'm very excited to be on the show. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So I, I have some curiosity to, to how you transition from uh, having Pounds and then going into Sixpart. What was that like to be kind of approached by them and then get consumed by them? It's, it's an interesting process, for sure. I mean, I was, I'm always, I've always been a big fan of the company, Six Apart. Um, I really like the products that they make. They've been very active in open source communities, and I, I feel like they sort of have a similar uh, values to myself or some, it's someplace that I always wanted to work. So it was actually pretty easy. How did Pounce come about? Uh, you know, everybody that... Uh, that I talked to you about Pounce compared it to, to Twitter, and I'm not sure if that 
comparison is 100% fair, but what's the background on how Pounce came about and, uh, and what you guys were trying to do over there? Well, I wanted to do really, uh, I wanted to do a social site and I wanted it to, to do with messaging and like sharing content online. Um, we had a couple of specific use cases, um, specifically when you found something online that you thought was funny or clever, how, how would you share that with the people you knew? Um, and what you'd end up, I'd end up getting like these IMs that were just like links to stuff or, you know, like links to funny videos. And we thought there could be a better way. And I, I met Kevin, Kevin Rose, one of the co-founders at, um, an event in the fall of, I want to say 2006. Um, and at the same time I met Daniel Burka, um, the, uh, the other Pounce co-founders. So there were three of us, three Pounce co-founders. And we all got along very well, and we really wanted to work on this idea. And Daniel is a designer, and Kevin's a business person um, and an entrepreneur, and I'm, uh, I'm a developer. <laughs> and so it all sort of worked out, and we had similar ideas and, and got together and just discussed them and came up with this thing that was, you know, inspired by a lot of different sites that were around at the time, because this was kind of a very popular idea to make you know, something that was like blogging, but more conversational and more social. So what's it like to work with Kevin and, and Daniel Berka then? I guess well, Daniel was the, the co-founder that had the, the design skills and you were the Yeah, he's a decoder. super talented designer. So that was really nice. Um, and Kevin's pretty business savvy and has really great connections. So that was yeah. nice. It was very convenient. Yeah, it's kind of rare that you get such a, a good team to come together in that way. So if you find it, hold on to it. Yeah, absolutely. So OAuth and OEmbed, you're the, um, you know, I guess, co-writer for both of those specs. Did those both come out of Pounce? Well, yes and no. So OEmbed more than OAuth. OAuth sort of came actually from Twitter and uh, Blaine Cook's desire to do, well, Twitter and Magnolia both. Um, they had this issue where uh, Magnolia allowed OpenID for login um, and as at the time, APIs were mostly HTTP basic auth, which depends on a username and password. And of course, when you have OpenID, you don't have a username and password for that particular site. So they were looking around at other solutions, and folks like Google and Yahoo, and especially Flickr, had done some, some token-based auth that was really interesting, but it was all different. Um, and they wanted to make sort of a standard. And Pounce got on board later, um, because I was interested in in the work, and I thought it was a really great project. Talk about OAuth for a moment. I've done some OAuth development myself uh, on the Twitter gym most recently, and I think the uh, the vibe is that it's well suited for web applications and and not so suited for desktop applications. Would you share that point of view? Um, yes and no. I've seen it done well on desktop and web applications, though it doesn't have quite the same benefits. Um, but it, it, it's difficult to come up with a scheme that sort of works for all three. And every single case of logins, there's like, <laughs> so, I mean, it's not even just like desktop and mobile. It's like a mobile app accessing a desktop app that accesses the, accesses the original API and things like that. So it gets pretty complicated. It is a deceptively you know, simple problem. I think it, it First glance, you think that uh, authentication is just something that isn't that uh, that difficult, but when you kind of peel the onion, it, it starts to stink after a while. Um, right. I mean, it's just 
it's security issues. It's things that you never think about that, you know, someone trying to hack your site is always one step ahead thinking of these things. And it seems unnecessarily complex, but there really are reasons for all the decisions that were made. You know, that's right. As we speak, there's a, an issue on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen it today. The, uh, the site Twitter Grader uh, evidently was hacked and sending out tweets on behalf of you know, hundreds of, I guess, tens of thousands of users. Um, but the cool thing about OAuth, since they implemented OAuth, you can just go into your connections in Twitter and, and turn that off, which is something you can't do with, with basic authentication. I think that's the, the main selling point. A, a lot of developers right. push back at, at wanting to implement it, but it does have its perks. Right, and it's not like they've stolen your password. And a lot of people reuse passwords over and over. Like my Twitter password might be the same as my Flickr password per se. And if if your passwords are stolen, people can hack all sorts of your sites, right? And you have to go in and change it in a bunch of places. It's pretty easy to actually revoke your OAuth token for a particular site. Actually, it's a little bit hard to find in your settings (laughs) in Twitter, but you can do it. Sure. And it sort of just kills the problem right there. Nice. You know, one of the, the questions that keeps popping back up on the Twitter list around OAuth is for open source uh, desktop applications instead of you know, on web applications, what, what should be the, uh, the protocol, I guess, around generating those keys? And, uh, the I consumer think keys? The consumer keys. So, so basically, I guess everybody that clones uh, a desktop open source app really has to generate their own set of consumer keys, right? Right, right. And that's an issue for a lot of you know, web applications too that are open source is they, they publish like their, whatever their, their keys to, to different services may be. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that I've, I, the best person to know really great solutions for that. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's always tricky. Uh, when I created the, uh, the LinkedIn gem, when they released their API, they implemented OAuth and, um, I ended up checking in my uh, my keys into the gym source, I must admit, and uh, had someone update my LinkedIn status <laughs> from my own library, so it was kind of embarrassing. But uh, oh, you wow. have to be careful with those because it, it, you know, it's just like someone has your username and password. It's, it's pretty funny. I think I've made the mistake of publishing like my root password for a server one time <laughs> um, in some of my code in, a, in like a fabric file or something, and I was just so embarrassed. <laughs> I changed it, of course, but you know those sort of things live on in your commit history. <laughs> Talk about it, uh, O-Embed for a moment, if you would. How did that come about, and what, what problem is it trying to solve? Um, so O-Embed was, that was actually uh, pretty much pounce-driven at first. Um, we had this feature where you could enter a URL for a photo or a video, and we'd automatically sort of change that link into the, an embed of that actual photo or video. So you'd see, like, a photo appear instead of just a link. Um but one of the issues we had was that we had added like YouTube and Vimeo, but then we'd have smaller video sites or video sites that maybe, you know, we didn't know about come and ask us, how do we get this feature? And so I was adding a bunch of JavaScript and, and specialized code for every single site. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is taking up too much time. Um, we want to be nice to everyone and we want everyone to be able to have their links appear as videos or photos. Um, so why don't we sort of make a standard format that they can provide for us and an API that we can use um, to sort of treat all these embeds similarly? You know, one of the selling points for O-Embed is especially around video. How do you see HTML5 affecting that at all? You know, I'm not actually sure. I haven't been following the debate debate too closely. Um, But it should, I mean, pretty much anything you include 
uh, in OEmbed in between your tags um, can be any, it can actually be any HTML. So it doesn't really matter what type of video player it is, um, which I guess could be <laughs> a benefit. There's actually a, a type for OEmbed called Rich where you can put in any HTML you like. Um, and it's up to the consumers of OEmbed to verify like the security uh, or like to make sure that it's, it's, it's a trusted transaction and that you're getting sort of what you expect. So really, if you switched from um, a flash video to uh, the new HTML5 video format, as a consumer, you probably wouldn't even need to know that the provider could change at will as long as they respected like the size constraints of the video. I'm curious about, uh, not in a bad way, but why did you choose Python? Why did you choose to stay with Python? And kind of what got you into development? So I was actually a Java developer in school. Cause that's no. Sort of, <laughs> that's what you do in school. Right. Right. And I had interned um, as a Java intern. And I got my first job out of school doing Java. My first two jobs, actually. Um, so I've been a Java developer for a long time, and and when I when it came to making pounds and making my own site, I was like, no more Java. <laughs> I want to see what else was out there. Um, and I looked into a couple different things. I looked into Perl a little bit, um, PHP a little bit, um, but not very much because I really wanted to use uh, web frameworks, which were kind of like the new hot things. So I took a look at Ruby on Rails, and I had just a horrible time installing <laughs> everything. This was. 2006, um, and one of my friends suggested taking a look at Django, which was like a totally new framework as well, um, and I tried it out, and I got everything installed a lot quicker, which is totally the wrong reason to choose choose a framework, but at the time, I, I just wanted something that would work, and I understood the documentation, and, and so that was really it, <laughs> so that's why I've been doing Python for so long is it was Django that got me into it. So serendipity then it uh, just clicked. Yeah. Yeah. I really felt like, I, I mean, I think people feel that different concepts in programming really vibe with them. And I felt like some of the stuff in Python really vibed with me. So. Very cool. Where and was your uh, internship uh, out on the West coast or in Minnesota where you're from? Oh, in Minnesota. I interned at IBM in Minnesota. So talk a bit about you know ge- geography for a second. So have opportunities opened up for you since moving out to the West Coast? It's definitely different. Um, I think my feeling was when I lived in Minnesota that programming was a job, you know, very much like being a dentist or a doctor. You just, you were a programmer and you went to work at a big company um, and that's what you did and you worked nine to five and that was it. And then moving out to the Bay Area, there's very different attitude. Um, in general, I mean, I've met people who do all sorts of crazy stuff all over the world, but in the Bay Area, there's definitely more of a culture for um, not working the nine to five. It's kind of like the the nine to two story. You go from Minnesota to to California, and things open up. Oh, what was that? Sorry. Like nine to two and right? Nine to two and Didn't they live in Minnesota or something like that? And they went from Minnesota to. To California, and I think you're thinking of like the Beverly Hillbillies or something. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no, it wasn't they were from Minnesota? Was it not? A, uh, you know, I think that was before my time. Hold on, you're going to have to introduce our audience to 90210, buddy. Oh boy. Well, I, I, I wasn't. I guess I was. I guess I was a fan when I was younger, but uh, I was probably like 11. <laughs> How old are you, by the way? Just curious. Me, 27. So you're you're not uh, you're not young. You're not old. 
Like, no, when is uh, when is just over thirty, and I'm I'm just thirty. The TV references from the guy that doesn't watch uh, or doesn't have network television. That's great. <laughs> I don't watch too much TV either, sadly. No, well, not on uh, not on TV. TV. Well, speaking of open source and open source TV, uh, do you use Boxy? You know, I I hate to say this and admit this. I've never used Boxy, but I've used uh, I just. Mm, Chris just uh, installed uh, Plex on our our app, our Mac Mini, and I've been sort of having a, having like a little love hate relationship with it. So, hmm. well, that does open the door for our first question from our Twitter fan base. Jay Nunemaker wants to know what Chris Wanstroth is like in person. <laughs> um, the same. <laughs> uh, He's he's very much the same online as in person. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he, he only speaks 140 characters then? Uh, <laughs> no, only on gists. If you missed it, we had a great interview with uh, Chris in episode 0.1.0, I believe. Yeah, it was our first point release. It's an excellent episode. About uh, three weeks ago. Let's talk about some of the apps you've created. So, uh, hurl it. I, I don't know that there's a day that goes by in the last couple of weeks that, that I haven't um, used this application. So uh, how does a Python girl get mixed up in a Rails rumble? So Chris and I did hurl it together. We also did the Django Dash together previously, a few months before. Um, so it was kind of a deal. He did the Django Dash and I did the, the Rails rumble. So it was fun. I really liked it. It was kind of crazy to say, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know Ruby very much at all, and to to jump in and um, I actually did most. I mostly did design, so that was that was pretty fun. But if you don't know, Hurl is a, I guess Hurlit, Hurl it, Hurl it, Hurl uh, It's a great API uh, harness to put in endpoints for APIs and test them and and replay those. Uh, Requests and responses. I use it quite a lot because Adam knows that I have an addiction to writing wrappers for APIs. So it's just does. something that I do. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of an API junkie myself, and that I'm like obsessed with every sort of detail about APIs, and it's really like the the programmer's uh, design, the programmer's interface. It's very fun. Have you come across an app called Charles Proxy? Yes, I've used Charles before. I, in, in fact, I'd use it a lot before I used Hurl. Um, it's actually love, really nice. I'm, yeah, I, I love Charles. It's just it's, it's too cool. You know, I uh, last week uh, the Gowala guys we've been uh, begging them for an API for weeks, and I finally released it. But I got tired of waiting, so uh, was able to hook up Charles and uh, set it up as a proxy on my MacBook, and mm-hmm. then, uh, use that proxy server connection on my iPhone, and then use the iPhone native app to go all and then sniff out their hidden API that their iPhone app uses. It's just too cool. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, I mean, I love like getting views into sort of, you know, having like these nice graphical views into what's going on um, when you're making requests and getting responses. It's super cool. Um, so that's, that's funny. Wow. That's crazy. So now they have a public API. They do have a public API, although it's uh, much slimmed down from what, I was actually able to find it underneath the hood. So on the public API, it's mostly read-only, but uh, there are some methods there if you know where to look um, to actually yeah. create spots and things. But I think they're worried about people gaming the system. You know, The whole deal with Gowalla is you have to be where you say you're checking in, which if you have API access, you could be anywhere. 
You know, is it? I haven't used Goala that much, um, but I did look at their API browser, which <laughs> people were saying looked a lot like Hurl, but Hurl was inspired by other API browsers, so it's not really a, <laughs> a fair comparison. You know, what I use Hurl for mostly is um, if I'm writing a wrapper to an API, I, uh, I will uh, use Hurl to test the API endpoint and then save the response as a fixture file. And then start writing tests that will parse that fixture file and then implement the uh, the code that that makes the test pass. Is kind of the workflow that I have. Um, oh, that's great. Do you use like the little view where it it renders it outside of the actual like uh, page UI? It'll just give you the plain text. Yeah, I do. I pop that okay. open and then just uh, copy that to the clipboard, then paste it in a new file. And uh, I use TextMate as my editor, so a lot of times I'll I'll use the uh, format JavaScript function that's mm-hmm. built into there to, to format nice and neat and tidy. Uh, most recently, I used it for another product that I guess you and uh, Chris also partnered on, Baconfile. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, Baconfile I made long before I knew Chris. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but he's, he's helped. Uh, he wrote a desktop app um, for Baconfile where you could drag, and, uh, drag files. So tell it. the folks what Baconfile is. So Baconfile is sort of my inspiration for it was... Um, I have a friend who has like um, just like an Apache server that displays files, you know, like a just shows a directory of files and you can browse it. And I thought that's great. I want that. I want a way that I can just, you know, put my files up online and just be like, here you go. Get this thing from here. Um, sort of sort of feel. And, and I, I found that there's not really any sites that sort of just allow me to throw random files at them. Um, so, the original intent for bacon file was to be for anybody to just be able to upload any file they want. It showed in like a nice directory and you could like browse the tree and, but it ended up being, I had second thoughts cause that sounded kind of costly <laughs> storing people's random files. Um, so instead I used Amazon S3 and said, if you have your own S3 account, which uh, you pay for your own bandwidth and your own storage, then you can use this as a nice web interface to Amazon S3. It's really neat. Uh, recently, I wrote a, a wrapper for it, um, Chunky Bacon File. Oh, but, I uh, saw that. That was great. Uh, basically, is a, a tutorial for writing your, your first uh, gem or API wrapper in Ruby, and I couldn't resist. Uh, I was looking for a test case when I came across Bacon File and uh, you know, why the lucky stiff is big in the, uh, the Ruby community. I couldn't resist the, the name Chunky Bacon File, so... Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, you know, I don't know how useful the app is for a lot of people, but I worked really hard on the API, so it's very exciting to, to see see people use it. Thanks. I really don't know it's not more popular. It's uh, it's incredibly useful to, to just be able to add a file and, and tweet it to somebody and say, here, grab this. <laughs> I, I think it's mostly the Amazon S3 component of it. Like, I think in the original concept, you know, where you just can log in and upload as many files as you want, I think it would be a lot more popular. Right. But the fact yeah, is you have to pay for your own files and you have to sort of manage your S3 account, which is a pain. Right. So. Finding those credentials is difficult, even if you do have an S3 account, even to, to find those in the uh, Amazon website of where my uh, my creds to even put in here. I know. I wrote up a whole like step-by-step thing for bacon file that's like, here's how you find your Amazon S3 credentials. <laughs> You know, and so it's it's kind of a pain. Um, but so one of the things I was thinking about doing this next year was open sourcing all of Bacon File since um, it doesn't make me any money and it doesn't cause anybody any harm. <laughs> I thought it would be kind of fun to to open that up. But well, you've already done that with um, 
hurl it, right? Because I was surprised to actually see the source, and I don't know why it didn't dawn on me that being in the Rails Rumble that it would be uh, available out there. But uh, that's already out there, right? Yep, yep, Hurl's available. You can download it. Uh, what I was hoping to do with it, or I think what Chris and I were both hoping would happen, would be that um, people that had APIs would sort of adopt it for API browsing on their own site. But it's not really packaged very well for that, but I was hoping that maybe it could oh, be. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So it, you know, to be able to run it, I guess, as a subcomponent of, of your API site to say, kind of like what Gowalla did with, uh, mm-hmm. here's our, our methods and here's how you can kind of test it out in your browser, right? Yeah, exactly. And the inspiration, I think maybe I mentioned this, it came from Netflix where you can where they have that sort of browser already. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second because, uh, Adam, you can just hang out with two API junkies who are talking here. Um, I'm taking notes. There you go. <laughs> so so uh, basic authentication is built into to hurl it, right? Uh, yeah, the ability to just enter a username and password instead of it having to do like the – the hashing. Sure. What would it take so. to get OAuth integration? Because that tends to be a much harder problem to solve. I remember when I was writing the LinkedIn gem, I had to write my own stubs just to dump fixtures to, to test calls because OAuth does add some complexity. Oh, definitely. Uh, we thought about doing OAuth in time for the, the Rails Rumble. Um, on Sunday afternoon, the last day of the Rumble, we, were, we, were, we talked about adding it in, and I played around with a bunch of different um, – well, I found a, a nice – OAuth gem that I liked and wanted to use and uh, played around with a bit. But what it came down to was the UI was complicated. It's actually very complicated to, to set up all those steps in a way that's simple and, and easy enough for, for anybody to use. And I think um, I've seen there's a tool, um, there's a couple tools for OAuth that are pretty nice. I think Google has one um, that's pretty good, but I haven't really seen any that I thought were simple enough to be a really good web application. So a UI design, I think, is the answer. So let's talk about uh let's talk about Six Apart. You've how long have you been at Six Apart now? Um since December of last year. So what uh what kind of endeavors is uh Six Apart doing in terms of uh like open source is really cool? So the really cool thing that they've done in the past year is actually a Django project called Motion, and it's on uh, Six Apart's GitHub site, uh, github.com slash Six Apart. Um, and but it's type, actually called Typepad type Motion. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Typepad Motion. Um, and what it is is it's a community site um, mostly aimed at sort of celebrities and you know, groups, uh, online groups, and you can go there and you can discuss things, you can post content and, and comment on that content, and it powers sites such as Paris Hilton's community site and Zachary Quinto from Star Trek. Um, so it's pretty fun. It's, it's interesting. It's hmm. a fun Django project, and it's all open source. So. And so how would, if you wanted to use that, how would you go and... Get, get started with using it, just pick it up and it's just, you have to be a, the Django, a Django user or is there something that uh, type that, that uh, Six Apart does behind the scenes that helps them out? So there's, if you go to developer uh, developer.typepad.com uh, I can't believe I'm messing up my URLs today um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's step-by-step instructions on in how you can get it installed and how you can get it running and how all the components work um, and it's pretty pretty nice um, I'm not oh, it's sure. showing up on the uh, the app engine. 
Yeah, they actually have it working on App Engine now, which was kind of their task for, or people have been working on that for a little while. A couple of people I know at Six Park. Um, that's pretty cool. It's pretty nice that they can strip it down, so it, or it can be stripped down to work on App Engine. And, and so you mentioned earlier that uh, you're no longer a developer at uh, Six Park. You're more of a product product manager, right? What is the what was the transition like going from more of behind the scenes making things work to sort of going to the, the different direction to being product manager? Well, I've always really loved Pro- product making- manager. Sorry, <laughs> I bet project. I mess them up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and in my mind, you do a little bit of both for for everything, anyways. But uh, I'd always been interested in making projects from the the ground up and making them from scratch, which is one of the reasons that I love competitions like the Rails Rails Rumble is that you have this opportunity to, to sort of come up with an idea and see that from start to finish. And that's what I really love doing. Um, I'm not so much just a developer as I am. I like to make whole projects. Um, and so once I realized this <laughs> and I realized I was at a large company where, you know, you are a developer or you're a product manager, um, I wanted to have that be my more official title. Um, while I still did a little bit of development, um, not very much, I, I really like sort of coming up with new concepts and new projects. So it's different. <laughs> what, uh, what projects are you leading right now? So let me see. None of my, I, Oh, one, one of the projects I worked on has been released. Um, Typekit integration with TypePad. So you can set up. So TypeKit is, is a provider of, Fonts, so uh, yeah, that's the uh, fonts under subscription, right? Yes, you subscribe and you can get fonts from renowned type designers, so actual real type designers, um, and you can put them on your website. So I'm kind of hoping to see the death of Helvetica and Arial and Times New Roman. <laughs> right. I'm excited to see new fonts on the web, right? Um, it's it's kind of nice to see a little bit more variety. Every time I see a blog or you know a website and they use just a crazy typeface, um, I'm just I'm super impressed. So uh, what had happened was there was a hack made by Ben Trot, um, the founder of Six Apart, um, to add these custom fonts to TypePad blogs. So I helped sort of get that released, which is fun. Were you involved with TypePad Micro? I know that was a recent release or yeah i started doing product management on typepad um i well formerly i'd worked on motion um the the django open source project and then switched to doing product management in part because i wanted to work on micro um i thought i think it's a really cool project um i really like the idea that you can sign up for typepad for free (laughs) Which is which is awesome, and it's it's really nice and simple and fun. So, are you getting attacked by school children? Uh, there's a school near my <laughs> my apartment, and uh, my windows face the street. So, so I guess uh, one thing you mentioned before was you you realized that you had this big company to to just sort of play in. What is it like to go from uh, you know back in school playing with Java? dabbling in Python to build Pounce, uh, and then you'd mentioned being acquired and what that process was like, but, but now you're this, uh, this product manager who can just decide on anything and, and play in this big company. How, what's that like now? What kind of freedom do you have there? <laughs> it's, it's all different. It's all a different process. It's, I, I always love change and doing different things, and 
kind of the fun of working at Six Part is getting to sort of play around with bigger projects, um, big sites like Typepad. Um, but at the same time, that also comes with a little bit of restriction. <laughs> you know, it's not where like pounds where I'd come up with something and it would be out the, ne- the door the next day. Um, it takes a little bit more. You have to spend a little more time thinking about your decisions because they impact a bigger audience. Do you get a do you get uh, an opportunity to go and speak a lot at uh, different conferences and? I used to more than I do now. <laughs> I used to more than I do now, um, but yeah, still, still occasionally uh, on a wide variety of stuff. You know, it's kind of fun to to have done everything from a startup to you know open specifications. <laughs> So, you know, one conference I'll be talking about OAuth and another one I'll be talking about being a female entrepreneur. It's like to- two totally different things. I have a sort of maybe a, maybe a controversial topic to ask you about. Would you, would you consider being a female in this industry an asset or a liability? Oh, that's a good question. And it's both. It definitely is both. Um, it's an asset because you're kind of a curiosity. People want to know who you are and what you're doing. And if you can play that in the right way to sort of get attention to, you you can promote worthwhile causes or, you know, sort of get to know a lot of people that you might not have gotten to know otherwise. Um, But it also is a liability in that you really have to sort of go the extra mile to prove yourself in things that I think other people would consider men competent at right away. It's kind of, it's, it's a little bit like a little bit of a prejudice and, you know, it's something I think we all have, myself included. Well, you've got to admit that it's got to be great not having to stand in line for the restroom at, at conferences, right? Yes and no. <laughs> I go to these women at tech conferences and it's like twice as bad. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's actually my secret was in, in college. Uh, I would always use the restroom in the computer science building whether I had a class there or not at that time <laughs> of day just because they were always clean and always empty. So. Well, how did you get into computers? Because I hear the argument a lot that, that we need to get uh, more young ladies into computer science. So you know, how did you get involved with programming? Well, we always had a computer in our home, and I was always kind of the ruler of the computer. I don't know if you guys were as well, but sort of the person that, that owned the family computer. Um, and I only have sisters, so it was pretty easy. And I'm the oldest. I was the oldest of, of three girls, so it was easy to sort of... Um, keep my sisters away from the computer when I wanted to use it <laughs> selfishly. So, and I, I ended up um, making websites when I was in my teens because I thought it was fun. And I made like an angel fire site and a geo city site. And <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, like HTML sites. And I thought I was so cool because I'd have my own website and I'd show my friends and then my friends had their own websites and then they'd make their own websites. And then, you know, it was like, when you get bored of AIM, you'd start making websites, um, which I'm kind of sad that that I don't know how that exists in any form today. Like, if you wanted to make your own HTML, CSS, I guess you maybe like spiff up your MySpace page. I don't know what the maybe Google Sites. That's probably the closest thing we have nowadays because GeoCities Kids is gone. Kids today. Kids today. That's true. Yeah, MySpace pages. Um, There's a father of two. Oh, what was that? Sorry. It says a father of two. You know, I, hopefully, I've got two. Uh, girls that might follow in your footsteps. We'll see. My uh, my four year old, my oldest, um, has an old hand me down MacBook that I was so proud the other day. She came in and asked me, uh, "Did we just lose internet?" 
Did you lose your Wi-Fi connection? <laughs> exactly. Oh, funny. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think part of it is just encouraging creativity and exploration. You know, we poke around at computers all day and aren't afraid they're going to break. And I think that's a really valuable concept. You know, the idea that you can play around with something and, and really sort of push its limits. So we're at the, uh, at the point in the call where we ask what's on your open source radar. So we want to know uh, what is, what's cool in, in open source out there for you that you're just dying to play with. Um, open source. I, I recently played with Node.js, uh, building some sites, server-side JavaScript, which is kind of interesting. Both the concept of server-side JavaScript and event-driven programming, which I hadn't really done a lot of before. You don't know it, but you just kept the streak alive. I think that's 10 or 11 straight episodes that yeah, we yes. mentioned Node.js. I think it's since episode awesome. four. Awesome. Yeah, really awesome. Cool. Well, it's sort of been like the, the most recent big project to sort of come out, so it doesn't surprise me too much. Um, I'm trying to think of anything There's else. There's a lot of stuff going on out there, too, with that. We just, uh, we just got introduced to howtonode.org. You want to check that out? Um, okay. two, two fellow listeners of the Changelog. I can never pronounce their name right, Wim, but if you if you've got it, is it Mikkel? Yes, and Tim Caswell. Tim Caswell. So they run this. They actually run this open blog, and what I mean by open blogging, and if you can read this other blog post, we'll probably send you a link to. But uh, they essentially just uh, wrote this blogging engine in Node, and they put it on GitHub. It's open source, so if you want to write a, an article. You just fork it, write your article, and send them a pull request. Hmm. Interesting. That's kind yeah. of crazy. And then a good friend of ours and fellow listener of the, of the changelog and, I guess, fellow designer, he's uh, more of a SaaS and front-end kind of guy and works mm-hmm. a lot at Compass. Uh, if, you're, if you play in those worlds, I'm not sure if you touch that much in, in your, in your uh, projects, but um, he wrote a, a recent article about kind of open blogging in general, just taking the concept of, you know, a blog is source code like mm-hmm. Octopress or Jekyll or mm-hmm. Staticmatic or something like that and, and sort of opening up the doors to anyone. Just fork it, write an article, and yeah. request. I'm not a lover of uh, static blogs. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I, I like the idea of, of guest authors and contributing posts, but I, I sort of feel like uh, database-based blog posts were sort of I, I'm I'm uh, this is gonna get me in so much trouble, but I'm kind of a sucker for, for databases despite you know the new trend. <laughs> I kind of well, what's your you know, what's your favorite CMS? Because Adam and I are kicking around some ideas yeah. and we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on the subject. You know, that's that's tough. It it sort of depends on what you're looking to do with it. Well, I guess it's six apart. You have to say that. Uh, <laughs> type Google pad. Type. I haven't Google looked type, at Google right? Type uh, much at all, but TypePad. TypePad actually is great for for blogging, um, and I would recommend it. I, I mean, I switched my blog over to TypePad um, about six months after I started working at Six Apart. But part of, part of the reason I did was I had been working on it for a while, and I you know I had been using it uh, to test things for. I wasn't actually working on TypePad at the time, but. I had been playing around with it. And what I realized is like, why am I hosting my own blog? Like I have so many other projects that I work on. The last thing I want to do, and I was using WordPress at the time. The last thing I want to do is upgrade WordPress. That is like the last way that I want to spend my weekend. So I was like, Ugh, I'm just going to switch to a hosted blog and, and type ads there. And it was, it was great. So <laughs> I, I know that makes me not the, the best engineer, but sometimes 
you have to pick and choose which which things you really want to spend your time hacking on in your weekends and so what is it with the database? What do you miss if you go static? What what is it that ties you back to the database? Uh, the ability to easily edit posts, I guess, from like a UI. Like I, I'm someone who just wants to when I'm when I'm coding, I'm coding. When I'm blogging, I'm blogging. I don't want to like go into my own blogging application and notice a bug and then want to fix that when really I should be writing a blog post. You know. So. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So the thing with us, the reason why we were looking at the concept was because um, I use WordPress to publish this uh, the website for the Web 2.0 show, which is another podcast I run. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I use WordPress. So I tend to just write all my posts in TextMate and save mm-hmm. the file locally. And it might be in HTML or wh- whatever I'm writing it in. Then I copy and I paste into WordPress. So I don't actually do a lot of drafting inside. Do you the write UI them in itself. HTML? Do you write well, your blog posts in HTML, or do you use, like, Markup? Well, I think WordPress actually uses, out of the box, WordPress, I'm pretty sure, just supports HTML in there, so mm-hmm. that's the only real option you have. I yeah. love Markdown. Markdown's probably my favorite. I, I like Markdown, too, but I think that uh, it requires a plugin, and I've just been lazy. I just didn't put a plugin. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I write HTML so fast that I almost prefer to just do everything in HTML. Speaking of HTML, have you played much with Hamel at all? No, actually, I have not. And so I prefer to stay out of that argument. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else on your radar? Oh, anything else. Oh, geez. You guys caught me unprepared. I would have prepared a list of Anything in the NoSQL space got you excited? And JavaScript in the server is big, so is NoSQL right now. You know, I've tried almost every NoSQL option out there. And I can't say every one, but I've used uh, CouchDB, Mongo, and Redis. And every time I'm just crying to get back to SQL um, for some, you know, I'm one of these people that I like the niceties, you know, I like the stuff that's been added on. I feel like it's such a new, it's such a new space that the the tools really aren't quite there yet for everything that you want to do. Anyways, that's horrible. It's going to get me in so much trouble. (laughs) Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, of course, right? And yeah, definitely, definitely. It's the first time I've really shared my horrible opinions on NoSQL. But, I mean, it's a, it's an exciting space. I mean, for Baconfile, Baconfile uses CouchDB as the main storage engine, um, which is good and bad. Um, it's great because it, it works really well for Baconfile, the concept of documents, because it literally is documents that you're storing, even though it's not quite the same type of document, but you're storing a bunch of metadata about one object. So you really are, it sort of fits the paradigm well. Um, and with Hurl, we used uh, Redis, which sort of worked well because we had very small amount of information to store and very, you know, very specific. So I don't know. It, they have their place, and I, I'll keep trying them out, but I'm not quite, maybe I'm just not in love with one yet. So What was that we talked about last night uh, when it was React? React. React. There you go. I pronounce it uh, incorrectly every time. It's spelled R-I-A-K, right? R-I-A-K. Yeah. And so that's like a, an open source and a commercial version of like an, a NoSQL type of, uh, of solution. Have you played with that one? No, I have not. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm surprised. So there's lots, there's lots of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it looks pretty Well, cool. you just have to be a, a better listener of the changelog. You'd be on the up and up as, if you'd like to be on open source. I mean, it, it moves fast. We help you keep up. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. I should keep up a little bit better. 
<laughs> when's, when's Chuck at my, at my plug, my shameless plug <laughs> of our tagline? Our tagline is open source moves fast, keep up. <laughs> it's, it is very true. And I hate to admit that I fall behind a little bit sometimes. Um, but what, what I sort of like to do is I'm very much like a product person. I can't really just play around with the latest technology without building something. So <laughs> that's my, my horrible vice is I, I love to build projects and in the you know, in that process, I end up using new technologies, but I, I'm not one to go seek them out and play with them necessarily right. without strong reason. So, well, it was, uh, it was actually, uh, uh, quite a pleasure to sit down and chat with you. You have such a, a deep past, and like you said, you've gone from the startup space to you know to working at type uh, working at Six Apart and doing all the cool stuff you guys are doing there. So you've kind of run the full gamut. You've worked with Kevin Rose, you've worked with Daniel Berka, you've you've uh, you've been to the hot parties, and you've been behind the scenes too. So it's it's really cool to uh, have the chance to to have this chat with you. We appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, you guys. I know I'm not the typical open source project developer. Um, but I really love, you know, some of the new projects that are coming out and I'm excited to find out more. So I guess I'll have to keep up with you guys a little better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thanks. No problem. Thank you for listening to this edition of the changelog. Point your browser to tail.thechangelog.com to find out what's going on right now in open source. Also, be sure to head to github.com forward slash explore to catch up on trending and feature repos, as well as the latest episodes of The Changelog.